0: Uh. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, and everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Try to please them and not to talk back to them, not to steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they'll make teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority, do not let anyone despise you. That's what you get when you decide to preach through a book all the way each time. It's a a tough set of uh, passages, and it's uh, the second in our series on uh, pastoral letters, so like I said, we'll do Titus, and then we'll do um, uh, first and second Timothy, and I don't know what, we've been reading these letters trying to make the point that they're not about doctrine as we usually think about it. When we think about doctrine, we think about, I don't know what, the type of thing that we'd enshrine in maybe a church constitution or that is embodied in the creed or that represents the way that we understand the faith. Doctrine as we usually think about it is, I don't know, like a series of propositions about what we're supposed to think or what we're supposed to uh, do. And I don't know, uh, as most people read these letters... Uh, the point of good doctrine is that you charge elders and uh, you know we do have great elders in this community, you charge elders with a series of, I don't know, codes that they enforce essentially. I think these letters are more about how in the context of a Christian community we relate to one another uh, in a way that demonstrates and that embodies our commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that in the end the question here is not doctrine Uh, as a series of propositions as much as it is a mode of teaching or a way of relating uh, that is less about the specific things that uh, we think uh, stand as the kind of codification of the faith and more about uh, what it is that uh, relates us to others in a way that helps us to see the person of Jesus. And I don't know, like, if you read Titus 2, you think about it and think about it in that context of doctrine and and, and how we kind of have disputes over what counts as doctrine and what what Paul's writing at, if this is in fact uh, Paul, as Paul writes it, when uh, Paul talks about doctrine, I don't know, like Titus 2 is the kind of thing that contributes to calls to cancel the Bible, doesn't it? I mean, if we if you just kind of look through the series of, 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 of stuff that we just read, it's like, I don't know, doesn't it just seem like it repeats a series of stereotypes? I mean, uh, I don't know what, women need to be reverent and give up slander and they should probably lay off a, of uh, old grandpap's uh, cough syrup. A little bit young folks shouldn't be too compulsive, especially young men, because they tend to be impulsive. And, you know, uh, uh, older women need to model for younger women uh, behavior that uh, that teaches younger women to submit to their husbands. And slaves should obey, not talk back, and uh, not steal from their masters, but they should be trustworthy and uh, obedient. And, like, i got to tell you, it's no surprise that 1 through 10 doesn't uh, appear in most lectionaries. <laughs> most people... Don't uh, have it in the normal preaching rotation. And the reason why, I think, is because, you know, if you're a strict literalist and you try and figure out what this letter means and you don't think about what it meant for the audience that heard it and you don't think about what it was that um, Paul was writing towards, what is the kind of pastoral advice that he's given to Timothy, if you don't think about that stuff, if you just think about this as a kind of a literal um, kind of presentation of what the eternal truth of the gospel is, then. I don't know. Basically, wouldn't you come to the conclusion that this uh, Second Timothy is basically the Bible, not only supporting but baptizing a series of rash generalizations about men and about women and about kids, and that the Bible is largely a pro-slavery document? In fact, in the context of World War or World War of the Civil War, it was used that way. One of the one of the kind of earliest scriptural rebukes, both against abolition and against the civil rights movement, was the idea that uh, you know historically the Bible had held a commitment that slaves ought to not only be obedient but basically be likable and make sure that they were serving the best interests of their master and so like how do we read it because you know resurrection church is in a funny place on one hand we're committed to the idea of the whole of the word of god of the that all of the word of god is inspired that each element of the word of god is for us something that god is intended to communicate to us is inspired is. Worth uh, worthwhile, as we'll, as we'll talk about, and not too long for reproof and 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 beneficial, but you know, uh, on the other hand, like, you know, there's, uh, uh, it's very difficult for us to square what we read in Titus 2 with, uh, I don't know, Galatians, that they're, a claim that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but we're all one in Jesus Christ. How do we hold those two things together? I mean, there's an interpretive choice that you got to make there for how those things fit together, what you do with them, and I don't know, like if you go to the uh, litany of uh, um, either kind of atheist or materialist type uh, folks that do arguments against Christianity and against the Bible, they'll basically stipulate to a literalist view of the Bible and say, this is exactly what's wrong with Christianity. On one hand, here's their text saying that slaves should be obedient. And on the other hand, here's another example of their text saying that uh, there shouldn't be slaves. I think everybody in this room knows and that uh, likely shares my position on this. I mean, my my position is: I believe firmly that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story of love and liberation. I believe firmly that in the resurrection, Christ came to set us all free, give us new identities as inheritors and members of a kingdom, and that it is an embodiment of a radical doctrine of love that sees the resurrection as the recreation of the world and sees the resurrection as a critique of. I don't know, every social relationship that entails domination or disparagement or hierarchy or any of those things. So I don't know, like the question for today is, how do we read Titus 2 as divinely inspired counsel? How do we read it as part of the full testimony of the Holy Spirit to the church? And it's a tough question, I think, until, I don't know, until you start to look at it carefully. Think back to last week. So uh, last week, you know, the reason why I emphasized Epimenides as paradox and why I made such a big deal out of the idea of doctrine in Titus, that Titus's uh, sense of doctrine is not about laws or propositions, but it's about, um, I don't know, like how we relate ourselves to each other in the church in the context of teaching relationships. That's, I think, the word for doctrine, you might recall, is didascala and it doesn't like mean doctrine in the sense that we think about it. It means something like a process of teaching. So what what this letter is getting to is what is the process of teaching that we use to relate to each other in the context of the church. And I think it's not about being able to repeat the right thing back. You know, you might sit down with Elder Matthews and Elder Matthews and say, what is the resurrection church doctrine on X, Y, or Z? And here's the thing, like, it would be awfully short, <laughs> and like, of course, that is part of the whole shtick, but the, the point is that what, what Titus is aiming at is that relationship between an elder and another person in the congregation is not about the person in the congregation being able to repeat back to the elder the right series of rules to be included in the church. It's about how it is that the elder relates to a person for the sake of engaging in a relationship that teaches, that guides, and that shapes them. And so, I don't know, like, it's not about procedures for the correct version of the faith. It's about guidelines for relationship. And that's why I made such a big deal out of that Epimenides' Paradox thing, the guy from Crete saying Cretans are liars, because the point is, I think, that Paul's trying to get Titus to see is that if you want to be a good elder, if you want to figure out what makes the church work well, if you want to figure out how we should relate to each other, if you want to figure out how it is that we can uh, grow a church and edify a church and build a church and do all that stuff that, I don't know, maybe something like your focus should not be on the right words or the accuracy of the word, but how does your mode of teaching and relating embody capital T, the capital W word? That's I think the point that, that 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 the book of Titus is trying to get at around doctrine it's that if we well if we kind of want to think about how to embody Jesus in the context of our congregation and if we want to think about how to embody Jesus in our congregation in a way that also lets other people in the world see it then that's the kind of question we have to be asking, because we all know that there are lots of churches out there that will ask very sharp questions about doctrine, meaning like, what is the set of rules or procedures that you have to follow? But what we want to do is ask the question, what does it mean for us to look like Jesus as we relate to one another and as we relate to the world? That's why I made such a big deal last week, too, out of our silly tendency to translate the Greek word, which you've now seen twice in Titus, elenkos uh, as rebuke. Like, you know, rebuke people and rebuke them well. But, you know, the point is when 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 this gospel or when, when this letter is talking about how it is that we're supposed to relate to people, when we think of rebuke, what do we think of? I think of like, I don't know, Kala, dang it, stop leaving the refrigerator door open all the time. I hereby rebuke you and I rebuke you in the name of my authority as an adult or whatever, right? But like rebuke is not like that, at least as it was understood in the context of, Uh, 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 of the kind of world of these letters, rebuke was, uh, and elencos was a process of questioning. It was about being curious about the things that the other person said. It was about being curious enough to ask questions and to kind of get people to talk through their beliefs so they talk through to the point where they kind of figured out that they were wrapped up in some implications they, they didn't quite see. It's like Ted Lasso's citation of Walt Whitman, good elencos, as weird as it sounds, to do good rebuking is not to be judgmental, but is to be curious. It's to engage in a conversation with someone so that... They kind of talk you through the things that they think and what they think it means to be committed to a specific principle or, or idea. And I don't know, all of a sudden the concept of doctrine is teaching and the concept of rebuking is this process of questioning. And like the pastoral vision that Titus has here is not, I rebuke you, Cal, because you left the refrigerator open. It's more like I approach Cal and say, hey... You know, there's a lot of good stuff in there and we would all sure like to eat it at some point. Do you ever think that maybe if you shut the fridge that we could enjoy more of it? And she'd be like, well, no, I don't really care because I want to eat what I want and I don't care about the rest or I don't know, whatever. But eventually we talk it through and we would get to the point where we might have a better understanding of what the other person was doing, of what motivated them to do what they were doing. And finally, a relationship that I don't know mirrored the image of Christ who comes to us where we are, who sees us where we are, and who convinces us where we are that we ought to be different. I mean, that's how like this idea in, in, in Titus 1 of the lying Cretan paradox and the idea of rebuke uh, fit together because the point of Titus is kind of for as much as we've made it about fetishizing our idea of do- our, our idea of doctrine, like the point is that the author of Titus, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, gets the idea that You know, our words oftentimes serve or reflect our own purposes. Our words oftentimes serve or reflect our own understanding of what the church ought to be all the time. And a lot of times we use doctrine to do what? To like baptize whatever it is that we believe as something that's sanctioned by God. And how many of you know people that in the context of the American political or social context have said they have a belief that is theirs that they have been connected with and baptized under the rubric of their faith, and they treat whatever it is that is that element of doctrine as if it is more important even than the scripture or who it is that Jesus is, because they can say, I believe that as a result of my reading of the Bible, X or Y or Z or whatever is true. And the point of Titus is to say no, that in a relationship of teaching, it's not the words, the individual accuracy of the specific words, but it's instead the word, the person Jesus Christ that is to be made apparent. Just look at the beginning of Titus 2. I mean, it's like one of those wonderful places in thinking about how much of a difference translation makes. What's the, what's the first line, uh, at what first verse 1, what do you all have? I You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Everybody have something similar? <laughs> Teach what's consistent with sound doctrine. Yeah, appropriate with, consistent with. Like, that, the NRSV translates it as appropriate, but consistent is, a, is another kind of typical translation. And, like, the Greek words really matter here. This is, you know, sometimes, I hope you all don't think that this is just about, like, bragging rights for biblical language, but, like, it really matters here. You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. The literal Greek says, are you ready for this? You should, however, speak... The word here I talked, speak, I talked about a little bit last week is lale. It's like proclaim. You should proclaim the things that are prepai, proper or fitting with, sound doctrine. The word for sound is hujiano, which is the root word for our word hygiene. It means something like healthy or holistically working well together. And the word for doctrine is, once again, didaskala, the process of teaching. Well, look. If you put all that together, it really starts to pop. We must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Sounds so judgy. It's the opposite of be curious, not judgmental. And think about all the loaded words in that translation, like you must. It's a moral imperative. Teach. Tell folks what to think. What is appropriate, because no one wants to be inappropriate to sound that is right or orthodox doctrine that is accurate or righteous rules and application of principles. It's not wrong. But it's a translation that awfully easily turns into marching orders for the Spanish Inquisition. It's about deciding who's right and whose doctrine is wrong. It turns on the accuracy of words. It invites us to make the message and not the messenger the focus. It sees the truth as a concept or a well-founded proposition. I could go on and on. But, like, the thing is, I love well-founded propositions. I do not believe that the truth is a proposition. I believe that the truth is a person. That person is Jesus Christ. So, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine is a lot different from a translation that says, and it's one that I believe is a more accurate translation you should proclaim the gospel in a manner that fits with a healthy process of teaching. A lot different from you should proclaim you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine you should proclaim the gospel in a manner that fits with a healthy process of teaching and I don't know it's because what I believe makes a good elder is laid out in the book of Titus think about it this way like so many of our evangelical brothers and sisters I count myself among them so many of them think that you can kind of figure out what to do if only you could answer the question what would Jesus do I think it's an awfully good question I always want to do what Jesus would do I do, but it takes for granted that we know what Jesus would do, because sometimes we do know, and other times we don't. And shoot, there are a lot of folks who think that they know exactly what Jesus would do in any given situation. I was just talking about it. You know, like, of course, they'd answer, they'd be like, oh, yeah, Jesus would pursue love. And yes, but like, what does love look like in hard cases? What would, what would Jesus say to an enslaved person? Obey your, does Jesus say to the enslaved person, obey your master, or I've come to set you free. Would Jesus say, be obedient or be free? Would Jesus vote? If so, who would Jesus vote for? The problem with WWJD is not that the goal of modeling Jesus is wrong. is that it's an invitation for us to baptize our own intentions and our own actions by saying it, that whatever it is that we'd like to do is the thing that Jesus would have done on the basis of our interpretation of scripture and doctrine and the gospel of titus is saying or the 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 letter uh, the, this letter in titus is saying something different it's saying be in relationships where you relate with the other person as if you both interact in the means that was taught to you by the person of Jesus Christ so that you can be open and curious to and in fact pursue the idea of love in, in any given situation there's this whole series of questions that start to flow out of that they're not Quite as snappy as WWJD, but they really kind of help us figure out what it would mean to embody this relationship in the church. How would Jesus act in a given situation to embody love? In what ways would Jesus make the identity of God as love and grace apparent? And maybe not most important, not what not just what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus' actions mean? What is the process of teaching and molding us in love that Jesus would have adopted? in a given setting. Before we can decide what Jesus would do, we have to figure out exactly what it is that Jesus, the word means, wants us to achieve and thinks would be most effective. That's why the difference between you must proclaim sound doctrine and you should teach in a way that is fitting to the gospel is so important because Jesus's intended outcome I know I believe with all my heart is always to demonstrate love but what counts as love in a given situation is difficult Jesus's intended outcome is always to demonstrate grace but what it is that demonstrates that kind of broader conception of grace as reaching out to and giving a gift to all of us is hard to identify sometime and to figure out what is fitting to a situation you have to know something about what's going on in order to preach the gospel in a way that fits a situation that word that uh, Lucia pointed out, consistent with, is a, pretty, is a better translation than the one that an NRSV have. That word there, prepai, means appropriate to. Guess what? It's an old word that actually really mattered in the way that the Greek kind of intellectual world thought about things. It's how they learned rhetoric. If you said to the folks in the Greek world, how do you achieve a specific goal? They'd say, well, you would need to understand what is appropriate to prepai, or prepon is the Greek root word for that. You would need to understand what's appropriate to that situation. And you would have to understand the goal that you were trying to achieve. You'd have to understand the purpose that you were trying to get to. And I don't know, our vision of doctrine, at least as I think about it, doesn't usually think about settings or situations or contexts or purposes. When we treat it as something that is always one way, we kind of miss the why behind it. And the why matters profoundly. What is the why for all the instructions about how people ought to act here? What is the why? I don't think this is a document that is trying to define the character of men or of women or of slaves. I think this is a document that is trying to create a fitting response to a specific social context that is internal to the community and external to the community. And the goal for it, undoubtedly, in every instance, and in fact, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is is clear to do this, that at the end of every set of instructions about how a person ought to act, there is some kind of statement like, I don't know, that it is for the case of of, of, of so that they won't be despised, so that the kingdom of God will flourish. It's about thinking about The ways that the goal of bringing the kingdom about in the specific context. Well, I don't know. The letter says it so much better than me in verses 12 and 13. The goal is to help us live in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope of Jesus, which offers, wait for it, salvation to all people. That's the frame for this letter. The frame for this letter is it is pastoral advice that is making a point inside the community and outside to the, the, the community about what it means and what folks ought to focus on in the context of the kingdom of heaven, what it means to focus on and what it means to love each other in a way that helps us live in the context of the present age. And the point is to teach and relate to folks inside and outside the community in a way that best embodies love. What's the background here? Why is it that this letter would be targeted towards older men, older women, younger women, and slaves? What 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 is the worry that it addresses? Remember, this is a public letter. It's not like it's printed and passed around as a as a pamphlet. It's something that was read out loud in public spaces. What is the context here? Well, the context here is something like this: the uh, you know there were all kinds of people that the early church would accept that other religious. Uh, kind of systems and or practices didn't have a particularly fond opinion of or didn't think were really kind of worthy of engaging. Those people included slaves, they included young people, they included old people, they included women, and that the point of the gospel was to look at each one of those groups and say you are made in the image of God, that you are a person who is in the likeness of God. And basically, I think that one of the biggest important doctrines of the early church was this idea that it had this kind of potentially revolutionary status as a social movement that said all the existing distinctions that Roman and Roman, imperial society was founded on are not distinctions that are rooted in the being of a person or the identity of a person and the point of the kingdom of god is to erase those distinctions so that there is no greek nor jew there's no slave nor free there's no gentile there's no yada 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 the point of the doctrine was to say that every person was made in the image of god that every person is valued by god and that every person is afforded a certain kind of dignity So there's this problem that the church had to negotiate at first. And the problem that the church had to negotiate at first was that it was telling all kinds of folks who were invested in all kinds of social distinctions that the whole Roman Empire was based on, that they didn't have to follow those distinctions. And I don't know. So this is a letter that says, basically, maybe old men shouldn't run around and agitate things. Maybe old women should help young women raise their families and maybe slaves should continue to labor like they had been. But why? What is the why behind that? I mean, I don't know. Look, there's all these instructions in two through eight that are exp- responding to the way that folks at the time would have thought in a rhetorical handbook about the characteristics and tendencies that old men and women and young men, uh, young, uh, young women might also face. So there's a list of them. And that's a very common thing in rhetorical handbooks of the time to say when you're speaking to a certain audience, think that they're going to do one thing or do the other. And it's kind of the sl- same with slaves. They're like, Tons of slaves who were joining the church in creed at this moment. It was a fairly significant kind of movement. And the church was telling them that they were loved and they were fully made in the image of God. So, you know, there's all these instructions about how pastors ought to and how elders ought to relate to slaves. But I don't know when you write a public letter, just like when we talked about forever ago in Revelation, sometimes you're writing a public letter both to talk to an audience that is internal to the church. And sometimes you're writing a public letter to talk to an audience that is external to the church. What does this letter say to the audience that's external to the church? Hey, you know, folks should basically fulfill their roles and expectations as we currently have them. What does this letter say to the audience internal to the church? That's a crucial thing. What does it say to the folks who would understand and share the values and vocabulary? Because I don't know, like, the letter is set up, I think, essentially to be uh, with a bunch of advice that doesn't shake up the status quo. If you heard it, you'd say, Ah, this is just, you know, some... I tell them the folks in, in, in the congregation not to you know uh, change their existing social obligations too radically. But then just look at the language that follows all those instructions. Think about what that language means for those populations. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. All people. That idea that God's salvation which we've talked about before and Trey's talked about a number of times, is about more than an ethical, metaphysical writing. But it's about the idea that each person is worthy of a fundamental readjustment of the ethical, political, social relationships that they're in, and that salvation is about writing the world for everyone, not just for the elite, but for everyone, not just for the folks who are in the fold of empire, not just for the ones who would benefit from it. But that idea that God's salvation had appeared for everyone was a revolutionary and an explosive idea. It said that the cosmos could be righted for a slave or for a woman or for a doddering old man and that each one of those people was made in the image of God and in fact that each one of them self-sufficiently would have given Christ sufficient reason to become incarnate, died on the cross, rose again for them. And the reorientation of the world along the lines of the kingdom has important implications it says that wherever you're born where whatever identity you're, uh, you're, you're you're given whatever kind of habits of life that you have as a result of who you are or where you're born or when you're born that those things are all mirrors of or are markers of the present world but that the hope of the kingdom provides us with something different. What does it do? It, In fact, verse 12 says it quite clearly. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who did what? Gave himself for us to redeem us from wickedness and to purify for himself a people who, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I want you to focus on that word, purify. Too many times when we, uh, you know, read the gospel, we hear purify and we think about it only in the individual sense that purification is for me changing my moral orientation such that I am rendered acceptable to God by the act of grace, which is true and important for us to grab onto, but it's not what the scripture is driving at here because the object, the thing that is purified here is not the individual, but what? The people. The people are purified. All of God's people, the ones who are just identified as, because God comes for everybody, that salvation is made apparent to everyone. And what is the word for purify there? Does it mean to render God's people sinless? I think the word there is a lot more interesting. The word there in Greek is katharizo. It's our same word as catharsis, to purge. And I don't know. I kind of think that what's being said here is something like this, that Jesus is going to, and we've seen this over and over and over in the gospel, especially in, or in the gospel and in the scripture, especially in kind of Paul's interpretation of what it means to see the idea of Christ. It's the same as the interpretation in Galatians that says there's neither man nor woman, slave nor free. It's this, is that the point of the kingdom of God is that it gives us a new identity and that new identity is one that is fully bound up with our identity in Jesus, with our understanding of ourselves as related to and oriented towards Jesus and that new identity displaces and in fact renders less if not relevant, if not totally irrelevant, all those other categories. The way that people would be purified to Jesus is to be purged of all the stuff that the letter is talking about earlier in the second chapter—that it might be that we hold on to specific social settings or positions for a while. It might be that that's reasonable advice as the church spreads. But much like the lamp that is put under the bed or hidden and starts the big fire, and the uh, the gospel that we talked about, I think that the point here is that it's proclaiming a vision of the kingdom in which Jesus purges or catharizo, uh, cathex, catharsis, whatever you want to say, gets rid of all the different things that distinguish us as people and instead claims a people that is his own, instead claims a people that is redeemed, instead claims a people where the only relevant function of our identity is to be children of and inheritors of the kingdom of God. Now, if you read Titus that way, it's a lot different letter. That's a lot different way of understanding what it means to have sound or correct doctrine. And it requires us to read it in a way to ask the question, what does it mean to best embody love, not only in following the dictates that it it asks us to think about and internalize, but it asks us to follow love differently in reading it and differently in understanding ourselves as a community. Amen.